Good morning. On Friday night, I couldn't sleep. Sometimes I can sleep, sometimes I can't. <laughs> Friday night, I couldn't sleep. So I got up, looked out my back window, and it was beautiful outside. Two o'clock in the morning, it was a full moon, and it was just gorgeous. And I looked at the moon, and from the moon, there was light going straight up, straight down, straight to the left, and straight to the right. It looked like a cross, and Jesus is in the middle. And it just surrounded. It looked like it surrounded the world. And so I just want to encourage you that Jesus is right there, and he has his He's just, Jesus is surrounding the world with his love and his mercy and his grace. And it just looked, it was just beautiful. It was just so beautiful, I couldn't stop looking at it. It was just gorgeous. I didn't take no pictures, sorry. <laughs> I didn't think about pictures. But it was just the moon, the bright moon, and then the light. Light was coming out from the moon and just going, and it looked exactly like cross. And it was just all over the whole world. So I just want to share that. Do you know what I'm preaching on this morning? No. Okay. <laughs> she does that. She's got that kind of connection. And we'll, we'll talk about it later. So if you want to preach this morning, Penny, you can, since you got it all. It's good. Right in line. Right in line with where we're going this morning. Um, presence, presence of Jesus. Before we um, dive into the sermon, I just felt compelled this morning during worship to pray for, pray for and against addiction, cancer, and um, what was the third one? Oh, shoot, there was three. Addiction to somebody. Penny, what was the third one? <laughs> Addiction, cancer, and God said there was one. Oh, depression, depression. Addiction, cancer, and depression. So um, I want to pray for those three things this morning um, before we get started. Um, Jesus, you are present among us, and you bring light um, into dark places. And so, God, we, we come before you um, as a broken people. As always, we're always broken, but yet we have life in and through you, God. And I don't know where addiction, depression, and cancer is hitting all of us this morning. I know where it hits some of us this morning. But, God, I um, pray that your light and your life and your truth and your presence come into those three things, that your healing power comes into those things, God. Your physical healing power, your spiritual healing power, your emotional healing power, your, your, your relational healing power comes in and through and against those things that the enemy would want to have sway in, God. Um, so, God, we speak healing in places of cancer, healing in places of addiction, and healing in places of depression, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen. I'm back on the, okay, thanks. So we've um, been transitioning out of James, right? So we were in James for a good part of a year. And then we said a couple weeks ago, we're going to be transitioning out of James. We're still, we're still transitioning out of James, okay? Uh, but we're transitioning into, into 1 John. And this morning is going to be a bridge Sunday and looking at both James and 1 John. Because there's, a, there's meta-narratives in Scripture. There's bigger narratives that connect the story, God's story of Scripture, together. And so it's not like we're just saying, okay, we were in James, and that was really nice, and we learned from James, and James is a great teacher, 
and now we're going to wrap that up in a nice package, and now we're going to go over here to 1 John, and we're going to learn what John has to say about Jesus and truth and light and life. And when we're done with that, we'll wrap that up in, in a nice neat package, and then we'll move on to something else. That Scripture's not like that. God's story goes through it. It's woven through everything. And so these, these bigger narratives, and so I want to draw our attention to one of those bigger narratives of Scripture. Um, what you see on the, the screen up above is uh, a word cloud of the book of 1 John. So you, you'll notice that my presentation this morning is a little bit more creative than it normally is because Justin put it together for me. So I just need to give credit where credit is due. So Justin, I mean, I told him what I wanted, um, but he put his Justin flair into it. So it's much more beautiful than if I had put it together. Um, so the number of times that a word appears in scripture or in a, in a in a text is how big the word is up here. So God appears the most in First John, and you can see, you know, there's like uh, the word come is down here in the lower left-hand corner. That would appear not many times. So that's what that is. We're going to come back to the word cloud at the end this morning. So, so there's James. James wrote his book, Somewhere around 45 AD, it was one of the first books of the New Testament that was written. That's what scholars think. And it was written about 50 years before John wrote the book or the letter of 1 John. So these letters are about 50 years apart, written by different authors. And whenever I look at that picture of 1 John, it makes me want to get a vanilla cone from Dairy Queen. Anybody else? Does it, is there just like a subliminal message that says vanilla cone from Dairy Queen? Yeah. Uh-huh. So, anyway, you can gaze at that. I wanted to give you enough time. Because I looked at it. I'm at my desk this week, and I'm just like, why, why am I hungry for Dairy Queen right now? So, that's why. That's why. Nobody leave early to get Dairy Queen today, by the way. You'll have plenty of junk food later. So James, 1 John, 50 years apart, James written first, 1 John uh, uh, written later. And their, their purposes for writing are different. The, James wrote to a group of churches that were, had dispersed. Um, these people had dispersed from Jerusalem in the persecution of Stephen. Um, they had left the area. They had left their home. And they're in struggle. They're struggling because they're away from home. Um, they're struggling because they don't have all the things that they used to have. They're struggling because they're alone in what they believe in the place where they now live. Um, they're under persecution. They're still in the Roman Empire. So we have these Jews that disperse. And so James is writing to the Jews. And, and first John is writing 50, John is writing 50 years later to a group of churches. Um, they're not necessarily all Jews. There's, there's a real Gentile influence in the church at this point. And they're facing a different struggle. But John is addressing that struggle. So what, what was the struggle? So the purpose of these books. James is writing because the church is struggling. It's existing away from home. It's facing persecution. And it's oppressed by the rich. They left home quickly. They didn't have a lot of stuff because of the persecution. So they go to a new land. And they have to find jobs, right? So some of them are working for rich landowners. And so we see in the book of James a lot of this talk about this persecution that they're experiencing or this, this oppression that they may be under, this difference between the rich and the poor. It's a hard place for them to live. And, and, and they're not doing well. They're losing their way. They're losing their faith because of the difficult situation and circumstances that are around them. 
On the other hand, John is writing because the church is also struggling, but they're dealing with a heresy, particularly the Gnostic heresy, which you've heard Justin refer to in the past. And the Gnostic heresy, in just a nutshell, is that basically this, this pseudo-Christian belief that material things are bad, so the things of the physical things, the body, the things of the world are, are really bad, and the spiritual is all that matters. And you can attain special knowledge of the spiritual and know God in ways that other people can. Well, this teaching is false because we know Jesus came in the flesh. And so physical things, real things, human things do matter. And so this teaching is getting in the church and it's changing what they think and believe about Jesus, which is in turn changing the way that they're acting towards one another. The church is struggling. It's just struggling for different reasons. John writes to the struggling church. James writes to the struggling church. So what was going on as a result of these struggles? What, what was the church dealing with? So in James, just a quick summary of the book, there's evil tongues. They're using their mouth the wrong way and they're hurting each other. Um, they're not taking care of orphans and widows. They're, not, they're showing favoritism. They might be favoring the rich over the poor so they can get some of that money for themselves. They're quarreling with each other. They're fighting. They're pursuing fleshly desires which all of those things ultimately point to the fact that they're hurting each other. They're living for themselves. They're living selfishly. So that's what James is identifying as the problem in the church that he's engaging as a result of their struggle. This is the manifestation of it. In 1 John, he's writing to the church to address the bad teaching that's happening. And this bad teaching, he's trying to correct their view of Christ. They're, because of this bad teaching, they're viewing Jesus all wrong. And because they're viewing Jesus all wrong, they're treating each other horribly. They're hurting each other. The fabric of their community is being torn apart because their beliefs are wrong about Jesus. So John addresses this. And he addresses it, as well as James does, pretty simply. Pretty simply. A simple solution? Perhaps. James says, you need not be overcome by these struggles. They're pulling away your community apart. Works matter. Do good things. If you do the right things, if you do the right kinds of works, if you follow the second commandment, which James refers to as the royal law that is found in Scripture, right? the royal law, the kingly law, the priestly law, the Jesus law, love your neighbor as yourself, then these struggles, these issues that you're having as a people, as a community, are going to go away. So just do the right thing. John says you need not be overcome by these false teachings. You need not be overcome by these false teachings. Um, You're hurting each other. And he gives some very practical application. He says walk in the light. So there's a good place to walk, and there's a bad place to walk. John says walk in the good place. He says there's a righteous way of being and there's an unrighteous way of being. Be righteous. Do the right things. He says love one another. The word love is all throughout for Sean. Love one another. If you don't love God, how can you love one another? If you don't love your neighbor, how can you say that you love God? So love each other. So there's these very practical, what we might call or think are simple solutions. Do the right thing, people. James and John addressing different communities with different issues and different struggles. The same problems are the same result of their problems with their community falling apart. Their relationships are falling apart. But do the right things and your community will 
be healthy and it will be healed. Simple, maybe not the whole story. So a wise solution. So we move from a simple solution to just doing the right things to a wise solution. Now, the danger in the simple solution is this, that we become, we, you, me, the churches that these authors are addressing. Okay, I can do that. All right, I'll do the right thing. I can check that off my list. I'll go to Bible study. I'll check that off my list. I'll love my neighbor so that I can have an intimate relationship with God because that's what I really want. So I can check that off my list. I'll stop having the wild parties and I'll start doing good things. I can check that off my list. And it becomes a very head-based kind of engagement to the problem. So maybe just doing the right things isn't all of what James and John are actually saying. In fact, both of them engage wisdom in their book in some pretty deep ways. And we saw it in, in, uh, in James. Um, in James chapter 1, James talks immediately about wisdom. It's one of the first things he talks about. If any of you are looking for wisdom, he talks about persecution, the first couple verses, and then bam, into wisdom. So wisdom is connected to these problems that they're having. So yeah, you need to do the right things, but you need to understand what you're doing by attaining the right wisdom in that place. The wisdom matters. And the wisdom that James talks about, he goes into chapter 3, which is right smack dab in the middle of the book. So he starts off with wisdom, talks about all these things that they're doing wrong and things they need to do right, gets to chapter 3, hits him again with wisdom, talks more about all the things they're doing wrong. So wisdom matters. It's an anchor point for the book of James. And in, in chapter 3, he talks about the wisdom from above versus the earthly wisdom. So wisdom from above is pure, it's peaceable, it's righteous, it's all of these things. And the wisdom from below is evil. It's full of jealousy. It's full of selfish ambition. It's about me. It's the kind of thing that tears our community apart. Look to the other. That's the kind of wisdom. And if you remember, when we look specifically at James chapter 3, I taught about how this wisdom that James gives us isn't a wisdom that's about making the right choice. Like, okay, I've got a choice to make. Do I go left or do I go right? If I go left, here's the good things and here's the bad things. And if I go right... Here's the good things and the bad things. And, oh my goodness, I don't know which way to go. I'm going to go talk to Solomon at the, at the city gate and he'll tell me what the right thing to do is. Certainly there's wisdom in making right choices in that and, and discerning the information that we have. But the wisdom, the picture of wisdom that James paints is this picture of love. When we looked at wisdom from above and what it means, it looks a lot like love in 1 Corinthians. So maybe when we enter into a situation where we don't know what to do, maybe love should be our default position. Not just let everybody do what everybody wants to do. That's not love, but, but real love. And so we talked about that being wisdom, and this is what James is wanting. He's saying, you look to the wisdom from above, because that will inform the kinds of actions that you walk out. It will put you face to face with the kinds of actions that you need to walk out. And then in 1 John, John is writing all about this heresy which is based on special knowledge. And John is saying, this is not about the special knowledge that you attain in your head. There's something deeper. Just knowing right things isn't going to make you do the right things. Like, look at the life of the world around you. It's falling apart. Knowing what to do doesn't make you do it. Having special knowledge of God doesn't give you a relationship with him. There's something more. So wisdom matters, Wisdom matters, knowledge matters, but not from the place of the head, 
but from the place of the heart. How are we engaging wisdom from the heart instead of from the head, which is, which is a challenging thought. But this is the place of wisdom that both John and James give to their hearers, to their listeners, and to us. So not a head-based wisdom, but a heart-based wisdom. Um, And when we look deeper into this wisdom, we find Christ himself. We find Christ himself. For James, if you, if you want to open your Bibles to James chapter 3, and we've, we've talked about this passage numerous times. Again, it's, it's review, but listen to this. Who is wise and understanding? Verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So, wisdom points us to love. Wisdom points us to love. And listen to this. This is in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God, is, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So this wisdom that James and John address points us to love. And the love points us right to Jesus. 1 Corinthians one twenty four says that Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. The power and the wisdom of God. So while James doesn't, he doesn't throw Jesus' name all over the place a million times like John does, but it's there. It's there in James, and we talked about it being there. And it's there in wisdom for James. For John, I mean, we're not going to read the whole book today, but man, Jesus is all over that book in really tangible ways. So in James, Jesus is wisdom, and wisdom exudes love. And then in John, Jesus is the perfect expression of the Father's love. This is the beauty of these books. In James and John, the manifestational presence of Jesus is made known to the people that these letters are written. The manifestational, the very real 
actualized presence of Jesus is made known. So they've got these struggles, they've got these issues, and their communities are falling apart. And it's not as simple as doing the right thing, because you've got to do the right things out of the right kind of wisdom, and the right kind of wisdom is connected to love, which is connected to Jesus. So they need Jesus. They need Jesus. Because it's Jesus who is the source of this wisdom. It's Jesus who's the source of this love. It's Jesus who's going to heal their communities and help them see what it is that they need to see so that they do the things that they're supposed to do. We can't short-circuit the process and just do the right things. It doesn't work that way. Maybe we can fake it for a little bit, but you have to go to the level of who Jesus is and that he gives this wisdom. And in this wisdom comes this love, and out of this love come these actions that bring healing, that draw together instead of tearing apart. So let's look at this manifestational presence of Jesus that ultimately John and James both get to. For James, it's right in chapter 3. He says, let me find my, my spot here. But if you have bitter jealousy, verse 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. Who comes down from above? Jesus. Jesus comes down from above. That's the picture we're constantly given in Scripture. Jesus comes down from above. Jesus is the wisdom and power of God. Jesus comes down from above. Wisdom from above. Jesus is this wisdom that comes down from above and manifests itself in the middle of God's people. It's real. It's actualized. It's right here. We can touch it. We can see it. We can feel it. We experience it. And we all have. We all have. So Jesus comes down from above. James says it in verse 14 and 15. He is the one who embodies this wisdom, which exudes and reeks of love. John, on the other hand, John makes it. Let's get James up there. John is like just flat out makes it so real you can't ignore it. I mean, he uses the word manifest several times. But if you go to 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, and it says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, Concerning the word of life, Jesus. The life was made manifest, and we, we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. Church, you're following the wrong teaching. You're following this teaching that says Jesus, the the, the human part of him doesn't matter. You're going astray. You're losing your way. We've seen the Christ. He's real. We've heard him. We've seen him. And he brings life. And he brings light 
to the fullest. And we want you to participate in that so we can be a part of that joy together. The Father is good. The Son is good. We've seen it. And we're going to tell you about it because we were there with him. We touched it. We heard it. It was made manifest. And it's real to you too, church. Don't follow this teaching. And James says to to the Jews that were in the dispersion, guys, what are you doing? What are you doing to each other? Why, Why are you so afraid? Why are you favoring the rich? You're poor. They're hurting you. What are you trying to get from them? You need wisdom from above. He comes down and he's among you and he's full of love. And so you can love your neighbor. You don't need to fear whether they have a little money or a lot of money. Love them because they're hurting and broken just like you are and you're supposed to be taking this message to them. He's among you. You can live in and through that. It's real. It's real. 1 John 4, 7-11. Um, actually, I'm not going to read the whole thing because I already did. Verse 9, 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world. In this, the coming down, God's son was made manifest among us and his love was made manifest among us. This is not a concept that James and John want the people to get in their head. It's a realization of their reality. It's life. It's true. It works. It changes things because it's right here. You can see it and you can touch it and you can taste it. Christ made manifest. He is actual. He is visible and he is realized. And so his love can be engaged directly. Not as a concept, not as a black word on a white page, but real. We know what it's like to feel the love of God. We know what it's like. We forget what it's like a lot. We live most of our lives not remembering, which he tells us to do so much, remember. But it's very real. It's very real. In turn, when we experience the love of Christ, we then manifest that love in the places where we go. Which returns us to the very struggle of both of these letters and why they were written. Because they weren't manifesting Christ's love among their brothers and sisters and among their neighbors. It just wasn't happening. And their communities were falling apart. Jesus was present among them. They were filled with that or could be filled with that. And then they could manifest it to those around them. But, but, that, but that wasn't happening. That wasn't happening. Um, Jesus isn't a solution. He's not a simple solution. He's not a wise solution. He's not a loving solution to a problem. Jesus' presence is healing. Jesus' presence is truth. Jesus' presence is love. And in and through those things, we see things around us being healed. So the question is then, how is it that the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, make themselves manifest in our own lives? 
And I'm sure some of us have stories. I mean, Penny just shared one. She used the word presence when she talked. She said, I couldn't sleep. I looked out the window. There was the moon, and there was a beam of light going through the moon horizontally. Somebody trademark that quick for the service. Horizontally and vertically, right? It was like the presence of Jesus, she said. Yeah, because he does that kind of thing. Penny woke up and was like, Jesus, there you are, my brother. How cool that you met me here in the morning. I see you and I feel your love. Sometimes that that manifestation comes through another relationship, through a word that somebody brings us. Sometimes it's through a dream. Sometimes it's through something that we read. Sometimes it's through the voice of the Lord in our head. Sometimes it's through the voice of the Lord outside of our head. There's all of these ways. And some of us might be saying, God never speaks to me. And then you shame yourself for it because you must not be spiritually healthy enough to have God speak to you, which is a lie. And some of you say, God doesn't speak to me because I don't know God. That may be true. You should get to know God. Maybe God spoke to you before, but he doesn't now, and so you're wondering why. But God manifests his presence among us because he loves us collectively, and he wants us to take that love to each other. And it's not this mushy, gushy love that we can do whatever we want and tell everybody, yeah, you can do that and you can live that way. No, it's the love that says, I care for you and I believe in the truth and the light. And Jesus loves you, and this can change our communities and bring healing to who we are as God's people, collectively. So what does that look like? Um, I was thinking about it this week in my own life. I'm thinking, well, what does that look like? I'm going to be preaching on God manifesting himself among his people. I should probably have had an experience like that. And I started thinking, and I started these stories started coming to my mind. I'm thinking, man, these are great stories. We need to tell manifestation stories more regularly because it's about God showing up. It's about John saying, people, listen, God showed up. We saw him, we touched him, we tasted him, we heard him right here. And you can know that too. Like, that's the kind of story that we're to tell about God's presence and how we experience him. So I want to share a couple, couple manifestation stories with you because I think they're encouraging and because I think it helps us to think of ways that God has manifested himself in our lives. And, and it, just because it was back here 10 years or back here a year, it doesn't mean it's not valid. It, it's still loving and it's still beautiful. So um, I was at work one day here and um, God interrupted what I was doing. It was one of those internal God voices in my head, not one of the internal God voice in my head. And, um, and God said, and I was doing something, like I was on task. And God said, um, I need you to go tell this person, it was a specific person, that I love them. I was like, okay. He's like, no, like you need to tell this person that I love them okay, I'm a pastor, I get it, I tell people that you love them. He's like, this is really important, this needs to happen today, it needs to happen now. He's like, but you need to finish what you're doing first, finish what you're doing, and then go find that person and tell them that, you, that I love them, that God loves them, their father loves them. I was like, okay. It was really real. Like, I was like, okay, I'll do this, this is important, things can wait finish what you're doing now, he says. I'm like, okay. He says, now, when you're done doing what you're doing and you start to find that person, you're going to get disrupted. You're going to get, you know, people are going to come in and try to, good things are going to try to distract you. 
ignore that. I have a tough time ignoring things, okay? Because I don't want to hurt people's feelings. He's like, you're going to get distracted. Find the person immediately. Tell them that I love them. I was like, all right, I can do that. So I finished doing what I was doing, and I immediately set off to find this individual. And as soon as I set off, the distractions came. Good things, good people, people I love. Matt, 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 Matt. And I was just, I just, I ignored their calls. And I found this person. Uh, I put my arm around him and said, hey, um, God loves you. And they were like, thanks. And they were cool. They received it, and it was, it was really good. And this wasn't like a God loves you, like a, I remember as a kid going to the Christian bookstore with my mom, and they had like 3,000 different pencils that said God loves you on them. And those are good. We have them upstairs in our kids' ministry, too. They get them when they say their Bible verse. Sometimes, maybe, you know, we look at, oh, God loves you. Eh, that's nice. There's a picture of a butterfly and a rainbow and all that stuff. That's cool. That's all good. God is rainbows and butterflies. I mean, I'm all into that. But this was like deeper than a pencil, right? This was deeper than a pencil. This was like, God loves you. He's telling you that he loves you. And, and it was... It was good. And so I told the person, I finished the rest of my day then, and I went home. And when I went home, I was kind of pondering this on my way home, like, wow. That that was profound. That was deep. Like, God broke through my day, my time and space, to tell me to take this profound message to another one of his kids, who I'm guessing needed to hear it. I, I don't know. I just did what I was supposed to do. How loving. Like, to be a part of that, was, it, it hit me. This was the most, and still is, and if, you've, if any of you have ever heard me tell this story before, it was my most profound act of ministry that I've ever done in my life up until now. Like, if somebody said, what's the greatest thing in ministry you've ever done? I didn't build a big building, and I didn't do some big thing over there, and I didn't do something loud over there. I didn't. Like, I will say... One day, God interrupted my day and told me to tell that person they loved them, and I did. And when I went on my way home, I realized how profound it was. And I told Courtney, I said, I think I just had the most profound ministry experience of my life. And she goes, what was it? And I told her, and she was like, that's cool. I mean, it was probably, I don't want to couch my wife in that posture. I mean, she was like, that's great. But it wasn't her experience. Like, God spoke to me. He made himself real to me. And I told her that. Like, God made himself real to me. And then I was able to make God real to a person over here. And that's what James and John are telling us. Like, God makes himself real. And we experience that realness, that that actualized presence of the Godhead. And then we can't help but act on it. And it changes people's lives. And I hope it changes this person's life. I hope they, someday, maybe 20 years from now, they're in a, a bad spot and they go, wait a minute, God loves me. And I think that's the kind of moment that it was. I don't know if it was for that moment, that day. I think it was for late, you know, God loves me. God loves me. Oh, that's profound. So, and that's how I felt. God broke through my day. You know, God exists outside of time and space. He created, he works within time and space too, but he's out here. He's like, there's my kid, Matt, and I love him, and zoom, bam, and he tells me what to do. Like, that's loving. God broke through my day in through time and space to have me do that. 
He knows me. He knows where I'm at. He knows how to talk to me. He knows how to allow me to hear him. That is beautiful. Simple. Beautiful. Second story. Um, Similar in nature. Eight years ago, I was sleeping at night, getting a great night of sleep. It was an awesome night of sleep from what I can remember until all of a sudden I woke up. And as soon as I woke up, I got to find my reference here. As soon as I woke up, in my head, Exodus 23.11. Now, I didn't know what Exodus 23.11 said. It was just the numbers and the Exodus 23.11. And I'm laying in bed going, that was weird. And I knew right away that was from God, Exodus 23.11. I hadn't been reading in the book of Exodus. I wasn't remotely in the neighborhood of Exodus. I hadn't been dreaming about people leaving persecution and walking through water. I, I don't know where it came from except from God. As soon as I woke up, Oh, God, Exodus 23.11. But being the wayward child that I can be, I was like, God, and he's like, look it up. And I was like, that's cool. I will when I wake up tomorrow, God. And he's like, I really want you to wake it up now. You know when you wake up in the middle of the night and you have to go to the bathroom, but you don't want to go to the bathroom because you're tired and you're warm, but then the more you think about not going to the bathroom, the more you realize you're not going to fall asleep and you're fighting this battle of like, if I could just fall asleep and I won't, I, I know, I'm not going to pee my pants, I just, let me go to sleep. But then, but then you, you just keep thinking about it and you're like, okay, I'll go to the bathroom. Come on, help me out here. Who has had that experience? <laughs> those of you, just for some sympathy, give me some experience. So, so it was one of those like, cool, um, you know, I'm not going to do it now. And I did it. And I went back to sleep. And like a half an hour later, boom, I wake up, get Exodus 23.11. I'm like, oh, okay, God, yeah. I'll look it up in the morning. I'll remember, Exodus 23.11. This is real profound. I know it's you, God. My Bible's right here, people. It's on the back of my bed. All I have to do is do this. I didn't do it. God woke me up six times that night. I know, (laughs) six times. Each time, bam, Exodus 23.11. By that time, I was scared to death. What does it say? What if it's weird and it doesn't make sense and I don't know what to do with it? What if it says something horrible about death? What if, what if, maybe it's beautiful? Uh, What does it say? I I didn't know. But I was scared by that point because I knew like whatever was there meant something. But I didn't look at it until I woke up the next morning. I seriously, I waited the whole night. I had a horrible night of sleep. Um, it, was, it was horrible. And I was like, okay, so I get my Bible, Exodus 2311. And um, hold on a second. I got to get my Bible. No, no, you know what? I'm going to use, use this version. I think I put the right version in here. Oh, my goodness. Um, so this is what I read. Plant and harvest. This is starting in verse 10. Plant and harvest your crops for six years, but let the land be renewed and lie uncultivated during the seventh year. Then let the poor among you harvest whatever grows on its own. Leave the rest for wild animals to eat. The same applies to your vineyards and olive groves. I'm like, well, I've got an olive grove, but I don't have a vineyard. So I don't. I don't, ha- I don't have that. So I'm, I'm, I'm immediately thinking like, okay, so it, it makes sense to me. You know, you guys know my heart. We live in the city. We live on 10th Street. We've done inner city ministry for years in Denver and Lebanon. I'm like, okay, let the poor among you harvest whatever grows on its own. Okay, now, 
people, just don't do this to scripture unless God wakes you up six times in the middle of the night and says, I have this verse for you. This verse is not about Matt Hershey's life, okay? But God used it, and I'm going to tell you how he used it in a little bit, okay? Don't, don't use scripture in this way unless God is partic- specifically giving you a message. So I'm like, okay, that makes sense. I'm supposed to let people eat off of the fringes of my life. Okay, you know, we're around a bunch of folks who live in poverty, and that makes sense, okay, but I was sharing it with Courtney and with other people that were, had spiritual sway in my life, like, what do you think this means, and for a long time, we couldn't figure it out, and then, then one day, it hit me, and like, I almost started crying. The key wasn't, like, the, the, the harvest part, the agricultural aspect of it. The key part was in the seventh year, and I started thinking, well, what, where was I six years ago? What if God woke me up at the beginning of my seventh year because he wanted to tell me something important. It was the first week in February. We're in the first week of February, by the way. So I started thinking back to the day that God woke me up. Six years before that, he told me what my calling was going to be to the city. I was sitting in seminary in a chapel service. Let's know guys speak. And my heart was just ripped open by what this guy was saying. And I was just like, I knew where my life was going. And I hated it, but I knew it. I'm like, well, this is God. This is cool. God's loving me. All right, but this is hard. And so, so six years to the day, because I even called one of my professors at the seminary. I said, hey, do you remember that speaker, um, a guy named Ray Bakke? He's a kind of an inner city dude, a theologian in, in the United States. When, when was that? Can you? She's like, oh, I got a pamphlet. I still have those in my drawer. I'll, se- I'll send one to you. So she sent me this pamphlet to the day. And God woke me up in the seventh year, like the first day of the seventh year, and said, let this happen. Let this happen in your life. Um, It's why I came on staff at Cornerstone um, at the end of that, like I started the first week in February, like it's kind of now a rhythm for my life spiritually as these seven-year cycles that are start about the 8th of February. Um, and, and, and again, the message in it, the profound message in it for me wasn't as much, um, but in the, um, uh, let the poor among you, in the seventh year, let the poor among you harvest whatever grows on its own. Like that, that makes sense for my life. That makes sense. But the most profound thing in it all was that God was waiting around for seven years. And then he's like, tonight's the night. You know, oh, I'm so excited. There's my boy. Bam! Read it, man. You know, okay, bam! Bam, 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 bam! Six times, right? And he still, he was faithful. He was faithful. And it hit me like, how much does God love me? That he, out of all the billions of his kids in our world, he's like, Tonight's the night for Matt to get this message from me. And I felt so loved. Like, I'm so special. He knows the number of hairs on my head. He does. It's not just scripture that says that. Like, God knows the number of hairs on my head. And he knows right now what's going on in your head, and 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 everybody else. He knows it. And how can we even comprehend that? But I couldn't until that happened. God gave me that gift to tell me how much he loved me and the plan that he had for my life. That's awesome. Here's, here's the hard part. 
So I'm in, like, I start year one over again, like next week, okay? So I'm kind of got like a week and a half of people eating off of the fringes of me. So eat while it's hot, people, because you got seven days. Um, we're going to get so many benevolence requests at Cornerstone this week, I'm not going to know what to do with them all. Um, here's the hard thing. Is that, like, it's really hard for me to live out that passage. It's really hard for people to, for me to like let things just grow and not be, have my hands on them all the time. It's really hard for me to let people just come in and, and take. And certainly, b- there's something to be said for boundaries and appropriateness and all this stuff. I can't just open up my life and say, hey, whoever wants to come on in, come on in and take whatever you want. No, there's an appropriateness to it, just like there was in Exodus 23.11. There was an appropriate, there's a boundary to it. So we have a neighbor girl. Um, do you guys remember my neighbor that I told you about who runs like this um, unofficial um, homeless shelter? You guys remember that, some of you? Yes. And like, it's kind of like, I was kind of like, dude, this guy's got all these people doing all kinds of crazy stuff in his house. And then I had that experience where he asked me to um, climb in his back window to unlock his front door for him. And, and I did. And then I, was like, and then I was like moved by the fact that this guy lets people live in his house. He lets homeless people live in his house. And so I was like convicted. And, and, and to top it all off, like ever since we got snow all winter, he shovels our sidewalk every time, puts salt on it. Like this guy is just killing me with kindness, right? <laughs> like I just wanted him to be my neighbor that's having all these drug dealers and people living in his house. And now he shovels my sidewalk. So like I can't even get up early enough to beat him to it. He's there. Um... He uses too much salt, by the way. It's way too much salt. Um, So this family moved in with him a couple weeks ago, and they have a little girl. She's she's in second grade. And so she sees our family and our kids and our daughter, and so she's been coming over. And wow, she comes over. And, And it's good, but it's really hard. Because it just, it's, sometimes it's intrusive, sometimes it's annoying. She opens up her, if you have a mail slot that opens up directly in your house, board it off. It's direct access for so many things that you may not want in your home. We've been saying it for years and we still have it. Um, you know, there's eyes peeking through and there's cold air coming through and there's hands coming through. And are you, I know you, hey, I see you guys. What are you doing? Why are you chancing your door? Hey, we're eating. Uh, Savannah's got her homework to do. We had okay, I'll just wait here. Oh, okay. Um, So she does. So it's like 25 degrees out and she's sitting on our porch just waiting because she has nowhere else to go. She's homeless. I mean, she has a home, but it's not her home. It doesn't have stuff. Savannah's got plenty of stuff. And I, I'm wrestling with this, and just I've been wrestling with it with my kids. Like, we're just like, okay, guys, like, how do we engage this? What do we do? Because, you know, let's talk about her life and her situation. Like, she was there for a week, and then she left and moved somewhere else for a week, and now she's back for a week. And we came, we came, um, we came home after being at Hopes yesterday. We were at Hopes. We were gone basketball games all day, Hopes. We were tired. We're opening up the front door, and she comes around from the back of our house. Hey! And we're like, Hey! We're like, where was she? She was probably knocking on our back window, spying in. Or I know they're here somewhere. I'll find them. And it was just like, oh, what do we do? 
And so it's this wrestling process. And so, yeah, I got this call from God and he woke me up and he said, I love you and I waited eight years and bam, here's this truth from scripture for you. Now live it. And that has been, it's been, it's hard. So, so hard. And so this manifestational presence of Jesus comes in and then I know I'm supposed to take it out or live it out or walk it out in these places, especially with her. I know it in the right, appropriate, boundary, healthy, perfect way, which who knows what that looks like. And I, and I wrestle and I'm like, oh man, God, I'm your son. I know that and here's the situation. And, and so we stumble around it and that's okay. It's okay. Because it, it, we need to be aware of it first. And then we need to engage it. And then when we start to engage it, then that's when Jesus like really starts to speak to us. I'm, I'm not there yet. Like he's still, like I'm still sifting through it all with this, with this neighbor girl, like still sifting through. What does this look like? How do we love because we were loved? What does love look like in this situation? It's not that she can be here whenever she wants to because she'd sleep overnight and her parents would let her. But, but are we giving what we're supposed to give? Are we giving the stuff that's growing up on the, the fringes of our field. It's the fringes. It's just the end. We already got all of what we need. God said that. He said it in the scripture. Matt, you have everything you need. So how do I, how do I walk it out? How do I, how do I teach my kids to walk it out? How do I teach them how to be a friend? How do I teach them to know Jesus and to love? And it's hard. It's hard. And I can't say that I have a great, great answer for you, except I know that these manifestational this manifestational presence of Jesus is real. He reveals his love and then he wants us to take that to other people so they can know his love. So, and then our communities are strengthened. Like, I think you're strengthened by the stories I just told you, right? Because, because they're of God. They're his stories. And you go, yeah, that's right. There's something about that because I'm created in his image too. And so I connect with that and you're thinking of the things that have happened in your life or the things that you're wrestling with and it's, it's connecting you to more stories and we could tell stories all day about God's love and, and that would strengthen our community because we actually find out what the core of our community is. It's Jesus and it's his love and the fact that we wrestle with similar things and don't know how to put words to it or don't know how to walk it out but we can do it, we can do it together. So I think John, John says it best, and he says it 22 times. He says, abide, abide. So abide occurs, we'll look at it here. You can see it there. It's one of the larger words. It's not like number one, right, on the list there. God, no, no, knowledge, right? The Gnostic knowledge, so no is a big word. Love, obviously, is a big word. World, a big word. Son, this makes sense, but abide kind of comes in there in the second tier frequency there. Abide. Abide appears 45 times in the Bible. 45 times. 38 of those are in the New Testament. Of those 38, 22 are in this little letter. 22 of the 38 in the New Testament are in this letter. Um, Listen to the ways that, that it uses abide, that John uses abide. Abide in God. God abides in you. We're not in it on our own. 
like there's a thing we do with God, and God does it with us. We remain, abide. We remain is what abide means. Remain, stay. Abide in God, remain in God, stay in God. Because guess what? God abides and remains in you. Abide in light. The will of God abides forever. Let what you heard abide in you. Abide in the Son. The anointing you received abides in you. It remains, it stays in you. God's seed abides in you. Whoever does not love, listen to this one, this is crazy. Whoever does not love abides in death. You remain in death. It's not just like you die once. It's like you, you stay there. You, you, you're, you're, that's where you're living. God's love abides in us. We are to abide in God's love. There's that exchange again. His truth abides in us. We are to abide in Christ's teaching. Team, you can come on up now. There are many efforts by the enemy to take us away from the important work of abiding. The important work of abiding. Remain, stay. Our culture does not want us to stay or remain anywhere for any extended amount of time at all. And yet John's message is abide. Remain and stay in God's truth, in his love, in his anointing, in his light, because his truth and his love, he's abide, it's all abiding in you. It seems like nothing, but it's everything. It is living in this place of abiding or remaining that we are confronted with the manifestation of God's presence. When we remain and abide, <clears throat> Jesus shows up. Jesus showed up to Penny the other night because she abides in him all the time. If you know Penny, you know that. He manifests himself to us like he did to Penny in all kinds of ways. It doesn't need to be weird and crazy and super spiritual either. It can be with a candy bar on the rack at the grocery store. Anything. What? Maybe that's weird too. I don't know. But if we abide, we interact with the manifestational presence of Jesus. And when we interact with the manifestational presence of Jesus, we come face to face with his love. And when we come face to face with his love, we're walking in his wisdom, which is from above. And when we're walking in his wisdom, we know the things that we're to do because it just flows out of us. And when we do the right things, our communities are healthy and they're filled with his love and his light. And it's beautiful. So as we move from James to John, these concepts of abiding, of presence, of interacting with the manifestational presence of Jesus are going to be so real. And if you've got a story to tell about that in your life, you should tell it. I don't care who you tell it to. Tell it. Tell it. Our small group met the other night, and we ended up having this awesome go-around. Where this happened. It was cool. We were hanging out at the fars, and we were talking, and we started this whole thing about this Jesus, this. And before we knew it, we were spinning all these stories of how awesome Jesus was. And when we were done, we were saying... Do you know what we just did? We just told stories about Jesus showing up in our lives in all kinds of ways, in all kinds of spaces, at all kinds of times. 
And we were kind of, kind of all pumped up because we were living in that presence, in that manifestation. We were abiding in it. And it was, it was beautiful. And I didn't even plan any of it for the evening. Now I got something for the next time our group gets together, which will be good. So um, abiding, remaining. So if um, abide appears 22 times in John and 38 times in the New Testament, it's not surprising then that in the book of John that there's a big chunk of abides left. Um, that's where a majority of the other ones are. John 15 in particular. Maybe that was already going through your head. I'm going to read um, a couple verses from John 15. The word abide is not the word you're going to hear. You're going to hear the word remain, which is the translation for abide. Yes, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do a little bit. No, it's not what it says. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, You are my true disciples. This brings great glory to the Father. So the ultimate end of this is not that we do good stuff. The ultimate end of this isn't that somebody gets to benefit from my good stuff. The ultimate end of it isn't even that I realize that I'm Jesus' kid. That's all good. All that stuff is great. The end of it all is that this brings great glory to the Father. Amen. Let's close. Jesus, I pray that we, who are your people, would be people who bring you great glory. Amen. That through our remaining, through our abiding, that we would bring you great glory because we come face to face with you. And when we come face to face with you, we can't help but talk about how great your glory is. Jesus. We can't help it. We overflow in it. So God, as we, your people, as we leave here today, and as we walk out the rest of our day, the rest of our weeks, our months, the years ahead, God, allow us to remain. Allow us to remain in the places where we are. Where we are, there we should be. We love you, Lord, and we desire to bring you great, great glory. We pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.